0: So the uh, first order of business today really should be the news that broke the morning as we are recording this, which is the passing of uh, someone we have honored in the L.A. Film Critics uh, Association for several times, I believe, Agnes Varda, Ah. legendary figure of the French New Wave, the widow of the great Jacques Demy a an extraordinary filmmaker in her own right cleo nine to five all the way up to faces places when yeah. she became second oldest oscar nominee in history second only to james ivory because they she was born nine days later yeah. Yeah. Uh, or something like that so um agnes passed at age 90 from breast cancer which i think is just you know it's breast cancer is always a horrible horrible thing but at yeah. age 90 I kind of feel like that's what, you know, she should have been like, I made it, yeah. right? Now yeah. I'm just going to die of steady old age. I'm not going to get hit by any illnesses, and that's just a horrible thing. So we, uh, we, but we honored her at, yeah. least, at least twice during since the time I've yeah. been there. Yeah, and
1: including recently for, yeah. for Faces, Faces, Places. places. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and a really wonderful personality, a uh, 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 great, by the way, that's a really great movie. That's a great uh, uh, sort of a yeah. documentary
0: her and uh, – what's the, the,
1: the French guy who wears
0: glasses? Uh, J, uh, uh, J, J, what's his name? Yeah, J, JD, J.D., J.D., C.J., whatever. The, uh, they, but the, the muralist. Yeah. He's a photographer, muralist, uh, and they And they were
1: kind of a great team. I mean, in addition to that movie, they they had this sort of um, thing that they were doing where they yeah. roamed around yeah. the nation doing all this press for yeah. the movie. And they were almost like Laurel and Hardy, you yeah. know, uh, you, where they just did this sort of boyfriend-girlfriend yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, And it was funny and sweet, and she was so sharp. Um, uh, Sometimes, way sharper than him.
0: Uh huh. Uh, Yeah. And uh, well, she was the thing that I always loved about her, and especially when you, you know, if you had any opportunity to converse with her, um, even when she was in her eighties, there at our award ceremony, and people, you know, we know people who had her as an instructor at USC as well. But she was endlessly curious Mm -hmm. about everything. She was. It was not typical, you know. She always had that weird, that weird hair colorization, right? Yeah. Like, you know, she she dyed her hair except for the crown. She left it kind of like a yeah, a, all gray around the crown, just to be funky. Yeah, you know, she was a funky old lady. Yeah, she was. And and you would expect someone in her position, like most filmmakers of that age, with any kind of a a a a, a, a legacy. To be sort of all about herself. Oh, come and kiss the ring and tell me how great I am. What movie of mine did you... was it your favorite? Yes. Yeah, so mm. tell me. And she didn't want to talk about herself. No. She wanted to talk about you. What music are the kids listening to today? What's hip today? Yeah. What's hot? What's, what's, what's cool in pop culture? What's, you know, what's the new thing? The, she thing, she to talk about
1: the, the thing she liked to talk about the least were movies she made 60 years yeah. ago.
0: Yeah. Yeah. She's,
1: she's and yeah, and she got it, you know, people but she's like, yeah. you know, no, and she was very up on yeah. all things modern and all things today. Constantly. Uh, and yeah. uh and uh you know, and, uh, and not willing to spend her time simply walking down memory lane
0: except in Beaches of Agnès, which is, that was that was the uh, the the one nostalgic piece she did, but even that was really very avant-garde for not really a documentary at all, you know. It's sort of a sort of re- modernistically reflexive. She's, yeah, she was an amazing, forward-looking, curious, warm uh, lady. Yeah. And uh, it's, uh, it, you know, it's sad that she's gone, but in 90, she lived a good life, yeah. right to the end, never stopped working, and uh, leaves a really an extraordinary legacy. And the only woman who is a seminal figure of the French New Wave, if you haven't seen... Uh, Cleo Nine to Five, you 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 just have to. It's yeah. really a the only treasure. behind the
1: camera uh, uh, yeah, the director. Yeah, uh, yeah, and uh, and and it's wonderful that she has not been left out of that canon. Yeah, um, you know, as has happened over the course of the history of cinema, yes, with uh, many many women who have been left out of the canon. She was not left out of that canon. Yeah. They talked about her yeah uh godard you know not he, he, he,
0: well they didn't, they didn't <laughs> but nevertheless
1: he had to he had to recognize yeah
0: yeah yeah so yeah. Who she, was. she was in the mix and uh and they all loved it and the funny thing was that you know jacques Demy, her her husband was not a french new wave figure he no. was a contemporary of the new wavers uh but you know did his own thing yeah uh but she uh you know and uh just a really a wonderful figure so that's that's unfortunate and of course we've uh, we've we've been talking a bit about the um uh the uh, writers guild and the association of talent agent uh, standoff which is april 6th is the big day that's the big day that the uh, the, uh, the 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 agreement expires mm-hmm. that was signed originally in 1976 43 years mm. so if you do the math and you think uh you know whatever agreement they come to after invariably fighting in the courts, uh, that is going to span another forty-six years, so or forty-three years, or whatever it is. So forty-three years. So mm-hmm. you know, you're talking well after you and I will probably have left. And if oh, we're yeah. still if we're still around, we'll still be doing this podcast, but we won't be <laughs> we won't be coherent. It'll
1: be, uh... <laughs> and somehow we'll probably still feel like the writers got screwed.
0: <laughs> I've just
1: never known the writers. Not to get screwed in the context of anything to do with Hollywood. In
0: 43 years, I can see us sitting here in front of the microphones going, this week we have a DVD. For those (laughs) of you who don't remember what DVDs are, back in the day when they actually had players, we don't talk about new DVDs anymore. We just talk about DVDs that we own. Oh, man, man, man.
1: What will the the film (laughs) business be? What will the television – I mean, uh, prognostication. How do you see it? you know, 50 years from now, 40 years from now, frankly, even 25 years from now. To be honest, the theatrical, dis- the, uh, the, I, I see that going all to tent poles.
0: I- yes, I agree. The theatrical business is not going to go away, but it is going to become more, and, and, I, and I've felt this way for a long time, and I, and I think I'm right. Uh, I think we are going to see things go back to something of the way that they were in the 1960s. Uh, the 1950s and 60s, where... Just you, at the end of the studio system. Where, you know, it, we have movie theaters everywhere. We don't really have first run, second run, third run anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what it used to be. There were first run theaters, and then there were the second run and third run theaters, and there were drive-ins, and there were, you know, mm-hmm. theaters mm-hmm. where you would see exploitation films and low-budget films or dollar films that had already played out. Uh, you know, there, there were a lot of different tiers to that. That doesn't really exist anymore. There aren't these second run, third run. And that, that was all that was true right into the 90s. You mm-hmm. still had that. Oh, yeah. So that's that's gone away now. And um, you have too many theaters that are, in theory, first run theaters. I think we are going to get to a place where streaming and television and, and all these other options, that is effectively your second and third run, mm-hmm. where a lot of movies that really don't need to live in theaters will go there. You're going to see a reduction in screens, but I think we'll go back to, if not movie palaces, something that makes the theatrical experience more than your living room, Mm -hmm. right? Because uh, I've said it before, I've said it again. The problem is that as living rooms become more like theaters, theaters become more like living rooms, Mm -hmm. and there's no differentiation between the two. Theaters have to become theaters again. And when they do, the only movies that will really earn the right to be shown there will be big movies. Right. And so we're going to get back to, you know, the era of the, the widescreen blockbusters about, you know, 1956 to about 1969, that, that kind of a model. That's where I think we're going to get, get, get back to. And theaters will be big and they'll be glamorous and spectacular. Prices will have to come down and it'll be a worthwhile experience for people. But most of the material will probably live on streaming and people will spend most of their entertainment time with streaming.
1: So mainstream dramas... Even mainstream comedies yeah. that, that don't have big special effects or yep. anything to do with uh, anyone wearing tights or a cape. Yeah. Um, uh, do you see those you know, film? I mean, uh, re- mainstream dramas. Uh, w- yeah, William Hurt uh, a film from 1990. The, uh, uh, oh, uh, the, doctor, King, like the doctor. The doctor. Yeah. Uh, I, I, that film with that level of movie star still not in movie theaters.
0: Out of Africa, not in movie theaters. You know, if they're made by a studios, and that's the thing. We're, t- we're talking about now, you know, look, 4,000 people being laid off from 20th Century Fox uh, in the merger with Disney, which is breaking our hearts because we know these people. Yeah, particularly you know, we, Fox
1: 2000 taking yeah, the brunt of that hit.
0: That's And that's upsetting to me. Uh, Fox 2000, you know, a powerful creator of original content uh, and uh, run by a woman. Stacey Snyder, another extraordinary woman with a with a great legacy they're they're cutting loose a lot of great ladies the one they're the one they're keeping is obviously Fox Searchlight mm-hmm. co-headed by a woman mm-hmm. uh, and Nancy is terrific I mean she's really really bright uh, so that that's obviously something that's a, a bone to the creative community that they're not gonna attack but um you know it, it's clear they want to focus on TV mm-hmm. and that they don't want Fox to continue to exist as a relevant theatrical brand because it's not in the Disney mold it's yep. not something they do yep so that's uh, so. what does that do? Well, that's consolidation. And I know people are like, oh, my gosh. But wait a minute. We now have Amazon. And now Apple mm-hmm. just entered the marketplace. And Netflix. Those are three massive new players, more than we've had in a long time.
1: None of whom are in the theatrical film distribution business, not really Netflix not y- either.
0: No, but they but they're going to have to at some point. They're going to have to really enter that in a big way because there will be an opportunity and they won't be able to resist it. And, and so now we're getting back to the way that things were. You know, if you go back to 1920, there were a whole lot of studios. Yeah. Like a lot of studios. And the, and the marketplace could not support all of them. So then they started doing these mergers. Because you had Metro and Sam Goldwyn and uh, Louis B. Mayer, who all came together and created, ta-da, MGM, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. Mm-hmm. Hence the name. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, First National was, was a, a producer of a lot of really interesting movies. And then they folded in with Warner Brothers. You had Lasky's famous players folded in with Paramount Publix Corporation, became Paramount Pictures. You know, so you have all of these things that that went on over time. UA eventually even becoming part of MGM. You know, uh, that 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 consolidation is kind of part of the history of Hollywood. Yeah, I, but uh, not not
1: but but uh, but. Those <laughs> consolidations were consolidations of between movie studios and other movie studios. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, we hit that period where the cons- uh, consolidation came under the auspices of these big corporations. That's Gulf been Western. a problem. Yeah. Uh, uh, and Charlie uh, Blue Oh yeah, you know Sony uh, eventually. Uh, yeah.
0: yeah. All of that kind of. Now that was a different kind of acquisition True. and consolidation. And and the thing that hit me a few months ago, I keep meaning to write a piece about this, but I never do because uh, I don't have enough time. But the thing that hit me some years ago was when I was standing in the in the lobby of the Thalberg building on the Sony lot after a screening. And it's a great old building, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a great old building, and it's you know, it's it's classic old Hollywood, and it smells like like you you could smell the sweat of somebody who was you know trying to make a decision in 1932. Yeah. And uh, the screening rooms are all in the basement, and it's beautiful. And um, all the Oscars, all the Oscars won by Columbia Pictures, are, are right there in the lobby, yeah. kind of in you know on either side of the uh, the guards reception desk, and. Uh, there are like 12 of them. Yeah. And that is tied with RKO for the most Academy Award wins by any studio. It's significant. Yeah. And I was looking at them and I just love to sit there and kind of look at them, you know, uh, from Here to Eternity and Lawrence of Arabia and Bridge on the River Kwai and The Last Emperor and then it hit me. Every single one of those was was uh, t- came between like you know it. it I think uh, the, the, from all of Frank Capra's stuff mm. right from 1931 or 32 whenever it was all the way to 1987 that's all of them mm. nothing since 1987 in The Last Emperor Columbia yeah. Pictures has not won a best picture since 1987 they were winning about every four years every four or five years they were getting a best picture and then since 1987 nothing you know what's significant about that Sony bought them the next year yeah Yeah, yeah. Sony's ownership, the skills. The suits
1: came in, yeah. yeah. And when the suits yeah. came in, uh, you know, the, the dynamic changed completely. So, in the, in, and therein lines, the, the thing to me. So, as we see yeah. these things happening today, so, you know, um, um, Disney acquiring Fox, that's studio-studio again. Yeah. So, that's back to the old school studio-studio yeah. studio kind of thing. Now, when an Apple or a Netflix or an Amazon engages in this stuff, I don't really think of them as studios. I don't these either. These are corporations that have arms that make movies or television yeah. shows yeah. or streaming content. Yeah. Um, But they're not movie studios. There's no Louis B. Mayer at the top of any of those.
0: True. However, I think eventually there's going to have to be. And even though they want to pretend that there's something new, I think they're going to have to eventually morph into something that is a combination of the old and the new. Mm -hmm. You know, Netflix doesn't own a studio lot, but they occupy Part of a lot, yeah. right? They occupy the the old KTLA, the old uh, Gene Autry yeah. thing there, which was which was originally uh, part of which was originally I think the original Warner Brothers lot in Hollywood, uh, and uh, Amazon just bought the old yeah. the old Selznick yeah. lot, which is the Culver Studios, which I love because that's a cool lot, yeah. And uh, you know, so I, I think all those little
1: bungalows, all those bungalows,
0: thing. it's yeah. wonderful. It hasn't, it's hardly changed yeah. since those days. It's wonderful. And, uh, so I think, I think they, there is a steady realization that, uh, there is, you know, um, at least for the creative community, we, we appreciate you more. If you recognize our heritage, Mm. film heritage means something to us. It really does. We, even if the general public doesn't care, film people know, you know, they, they know they, they, they have an appreciation for what the studio system was and where we came from and old movies and you know, I'm, I'm. I guarantee you, every movie star today can start naming, rattling off their favorite black and white movies yeah. from the thirties and forties. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's a thing. It's a thing.
0: Yeah, oh, man. All right, so let's let's get in. I'm going to talk about a, a few uh, music things real quick. We got some great ones in from Naxos. Uh, some beautiful stuff. This is unbelievable. Uh, Simon Rattle, one of the great conductors of of all time, uh, dr- conducting the Berlin Philharmonic. Uh, in Mahler's Symphony Number 6. This is phenomenal. This is something worthy of Mahler. Let me tell you, this is a completely custom book-looking thing for your shelf. It will not fit anywhere uh, that you can put other Blu-rays or CDs. It is a two-CD and one Blu-ray set that also includes a documentary about Simon Rattle as well as concert video and uh, studio masters. Um, There's even a seven-day digital concert hall voucher this thing is really phenomenal, uh, and it's it's a great gift too. If you have any reason to give anybody a, a gift anytime soon, uh, maybe even hang on to it for the holidays. But it's really really terrific. Uh, you have um, uh, two different recordings of Mahler's Symphony Number no. Six on CD Number no. One from uh, June two thousand eighteen, and then uh, from November of nineteen eighty seven. And uh, they are both absolutely terrific. I, I'm not enough of a, a complete and crazy classical audiophile to tell you which one is better, but they're pretty great. And um, then obviously on the Blu-ray, you, you know, you get everything and, and high-res audio, and uh, the, uh, the the it's pretty fantastic. Obviously, the the, uh, the 1987 concert was not shot. That one you only get an audio. The one that you have the video of is the uh, 2018 one, but it is um, it's pretty great. And then you can download high-resolution audio files. And and do what you want with them. It's it's crazy. And uh, the uh, the digital concert hall thing is really really interesting. You can there's this uh, streaming service that they have now with the the Berlin Philharmonic, and this gets you in on that. If you are any kind of a classical music wonk, that's a dream come true. That's a really cool thing. And that is just a big old brick of a of a thing. Uh, another big old brick, but this one will fit on your shelf is the John Neumeyer collection, and this is a limited edition. And uh, John Neumeier, of course, uh, kind of a a legendary fixture in the world of ballet and, um, you know, really extraordinary stager and choreographer, just a visionary in so many respects. And uh, this this includes The Little Mermaid, uh, uh, Tatiana, uh, based on the uh, Onegin by Alexander Pushkin, Nijinsky, and I'm going to do my best to actually pronounce this in a way that makes sense, because this is, this is by Bach. Mm. Uh, and I, you would think I'm half German, so I'd be able to pronounce this. Weihnachtsoratorium. The night Boy. of? Yeah, the, the or, or, oratorio of Christmas. Oratorio of Christmas? Yeah. Weihnacht. Yeah, it's the Christmas oratorio. Weihnachtsoratorium. But that's, you know, you have to say it that way if you're going to be faithful to Bach uh Anyway, the uh, the best of these, I think, is the Little Mermaid. Not just because my daughter loves the Disney film, but because it really is extraordinary uh, choreography. It's just beautiful, beautiful, daring ballet. It's really great, and Nijinsky, of course, is great as well. So uh, this is from C major. It's on Blu-ray, and it is a serious treat. Uh, we also have uh, Gluck's Orpheus and Eurydice, uh, Orphée et Eurydice. Uh, opera, staged by uh, Hofesh Schechter and John Full James for the uh, Teatro alla Scala. That's... It's an opera. It's fine. Uh, it's not, not my speed, but, you know, it's gluck. I'm not a big fan of gluck. Uh, anyway, Tchaikovsky's a Nutcracker uh, has been out a million times. This is another really, really good one done by the Ballet Company of the National Opera of Ukraine, which is wonderful. It's really a uh, totally classic uh, staging. And, uh, you know, you, Nutcracker has been done a really lot of, a lot of avant-garde versions, kind of, uh, you know, very, very modern interpretations. This one is not. It's Ukraine. It's classic. We're going to go old-school Russian, and it's beautifully art-directed and beautifully set-directed. It's really fantastic. Uh, from Dynamic, we have Nino Rota, uh, The Night of a Neurotic, La Notte di un Nevrastenico. Pretty cool. Nino Rota, for those who don't know, didn't just do movie music; also did some some pretty extraordinary opera work, uh, and uh, you know, really a, a seminal figure in Italian music, classical and cinema. And uh, this is this is one of uh, one of those operas that I had never heard of, but it's really really good, and it's beautifully staged by the um, by conductor Gabriele Bonolis and director Cesare Scartone. Uh, along with the Rayata Festival Orchestra, it's just uh, it's just beautiful. Uh, the uh, Rameau, this is another uh, another opera. I'm not familiar with Rameau, but the um, the opera is Les Fêtes de Lyman et de Lamour. This is uh, an Egyptian thing that it's like an Egyptian themed opera, an old Egypt themed opera, uh, staged by the Opera Lafayette and the New York Baroque Dance Company. And uh, it's very modern. It's really elaborate. The costumes are extraordinary. The dance is very, very impressive. Um, it's, it's, like an, it's like an opera ballet fusion is probably the best way to put it. And uh, this was written in the uh, 1700s by Jean-Philippe Rameau. So, uh, again, you know, not, uh, not that familiar with Rameau, but it's, you know, written in the 1700s, but it's very modern. It feels very modern. It's the kind of thing that, uh, that you know, modern audiences would respond to a lot more. Uh, another beautiful brick of a box set, the uh, the Royal Ballet from Opus Arte, the Royal Ballet, and the Royal Opera House, the Frederick Ashton Collection, Volume One. There will invariably be more of these. This includes Rhapsody, The Two Pigeons, The Dream and Symphonic Variations, and Marguerite and Armand. Um, uh, just lots of really, really wonderful stuff here with the uh, you know b- ballets uh, staged by Frederick Ashton that just are absolutely beautiful. Uh, Some wonderful music here. Satie, Liszt, Massenet, Rachmaninoff. Uh, It's really, really very impressive. Uh, It's a nice collection. And there will be many more of these. Three Blu-rays, Royal Ballet at the Royal Opera House, the Frederick Ashton Collection, Volume 1. And then lastly, not from Naxos, but certainly the music speed of some other people, if you are fans of Glastonbury music, uh, boy, you're going to love this. This is a Nick Rogue film that I didn't even know existed. This is Glastonbury Fair, F-A-Y-R-E, which is capturing, you know, a lot of great directors did the music concert, the music festival documentary route, and uh, wound up doing actually some of their best work. Martin Scorsese certainly did it. The Mazleys did it. And um, this captures the madness of Glastonbury in 1971. It's not Woodstock, but it's not far. It's like the European Woodstock. And uh, it's really a, it's a trip back in time. It's a trippy era. It's a trippy moment. And it's uh, it's pretty amazing that it they, they were able to get the trippiest director of the period to actually kind of throw his spin on it. But the nice thing is Nick Rogue doesn't do what he often does, which is um, – and certainly what he became famous for doing, which was imposing his style on things and becoming kind of a – Risking being a style over substance filmmaker, uh, he really does let Glastonbury have its own personality here. It really kind of shines through, and it captures that moment in a way that uh, is is not overly intruded upon by the filmmaker's sense of style. Uh, Glastonbury is a really amazing place too. Uh, if you've ever, if, for those who've never been to the, to the United Kingdom or to England, Glastonbury is is out kind of on the the lower. The southern western part of uh, of, of England, uh, and it's a it's a it's really a, a kind of an old mystical Arthurian place, and uh, they they sort of own it. They own the fact that people wear funny clothes, and you can you can buy magic wares, and it really you know the the landscape there has some great history. There's the uh, the Glastonbury Tor, which is the remnants of an old an old uh, monastery that sits on this lone hill, which has some really fascinating ancient origins, which was destroyed when they burned all the monasteries after uh, you know Henry VIII uh, decided we're, we're not going to be a Catholic country anymore, and suddenly these religious wars took root. Um, so it, it has a fascinating history. It's out beyond Stonehenge. You pass Stonehenge on the way out there. It's a great place to go. And uh, Glastonbury Fair... Um, 1971 The True Spirit of Glastonbury it's really a, really a fascinating movie and for Nick Rogue completists you definitely want to check this out uh, Glastonbury Fair 1971 The True Spirit of Glastonbury alright Tim new movies what do we got
1: uh, several including some that were uh, that talked about during the recent awards season uh, including if Bill Street could talk, uh, really, really lovely poetic adaptation of James Baldwin. I
0: love you know what you know what I love about this movie, and, then I'll, and I'll let you go right after this. <laughs> but, but the, the, the there are two things going on here. There's James Baldwin's prose, mm. which is always beautiful, which is it, just an, a, a wonderful thing to read, a beautiful way with words. And then there there's the fact that you're watching a movie, which has to be a visual medium. How mm. do you translate that? As poetic a filmmaker as Barry Jenkins is, and as good a writer as he is, how do you do that without, you know, let it be live as a movie, translated into a movie, but not lose mm. the elegance of the prose? And he did it. Yeah. it it's just enough voiceover that, to give you the taste, to yeah. leave that taste in your mouth. It's a beautiful thing. And
1: delivered in a, in, in, in a beautiful way. Wonderful performance by Regina King. It's so deserved. Yeah, so, that, that Academy Award, uh, Nicholas Bertel's beautiful score helped in that thing that you're yeah, talking about, yeah. carrying that, that lyricism and that, po- that, yeah. that poetry. It's a beautiful, beautiful movie uh, with three Academy Award nominations from Barry Jenkins. So, you know.
0: I, I, and I, I've said from the beginning, I actually think it's a Bertolucci film. Oh it, yeah, it's, it, it um, has. It feels like a Bertolucci film.
1: It's 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 besieged. Uh, exactly uh, is is what it's, yep. a wonderful Tondi Newton yep. film with David
0: Thewlis yep. by Bert- yep. Bernardo Bertolucci.
1: Um, at Eternity's Gate was another one, uh, uh, interesting film.
0: Uh, I went uh, to the uh, the thing at the Saucer House while, and then I was late <laughs> over here to interview Latoya. You were sitting there with Latoya because oh, yeah. I because I was stuck there trying to because I was blocked from getting out because Michael Mann and Al Pacino were blocking my way at the door. It was like it's, I,
1: it's weird that they were even at a Julian Schnabel. I film. know. You it know. was the yeah. place to be.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah the, <laughs> anyway. the, the, the 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 butterfly, the the belfly. Oh, diving bell and the butterfly. The, one of my yeah. favorite
1: films. Just yeah. love that movie. Uh, this is wonderful. Uh, Willem Dafoe uh, again. You know, um, yeah. um, funny that he's playing um, um, he's playing uh, the, the the character uh, uh van, van Gogh. Yeah, and I think he's got to be twenty or thirty years older he, than Van Gogh was he, when Van Gogh died.
0: He talked about that. So Schnabel talked about that at the at the shindig, and um, he said, "Yeah, look, uh, Vincent Van Gogh died, you know, whatever whatever age it was, thirty something or mm-hmm. other." And uh, yeah, Willem Defoe is like sixty or something. He goes, "But Van Gogh lived a hard life, yeah, <laughs> and and Willem looks really good for his age, yeah." So he he he's like, "So I had no problem with that." And you know, it's true, Defoe. Looks phenomenal. He
1: looks fantastic. And <laughs> certainly uh, Van Gogh looked much older than his 30-whatever years. older, yeah. Oscar Isaac gave a great performance in this film, too, as his brother, Matthew Almarick. Anyway, it's a neat movie that I rather enjoyed. Special in features, uh, a special features, uh, a few special features, including an audio commentary with the director, Julian Julian uh, Julian's is really a wonderful good. painter. I like I Julian as a filmmaker. Some people don't. Um, um he
0: approaches uh, filmmaking as he approaches painting which is what makes his films really interesting they're unique he doesn't consider himself a filmmaker per se he's a painter who makes movies yeah and that's really interesting
1: which is the opposite of say a steve mcqueen who's also a, a fine yeah. arts painter but he considers himself a, a narrative filmmaker And he
0: taught willem defoe how to paint yeah. for
1: the movie yeah
0: he taught him how to do it you know so you know and so a lot of, there's a lot of stuff in there that willem defoe actually did paint it's Quite interesting. Yeah, he's
1: gonna end up like a Stallone. Uh,
0: <laughs> Hopefully, better than that. <laughs> Sam not Elliot. bad.
1: It's almost, no. Stallone is a yeah. rather is a rather good painter. People yeah. like to make fun of him, but I'm sorry, I don't. Yeah. Um, the, the man who killed Hitler and and then Bigfoot. Yep. <laughs> our, our Sam Elliott, who you tell me you saw. I too long saw ago.
0: Sam Elliott this week. So I was at a coffee shop having a little sit down and catch up with a, a common friend of ours. And uh, Sam Elliott comes, you know, moseying in like he just got off a horse, all kind of bow legged and stiff looking and uh, yeah. but looking great. And yeah. it was, you know. Yeah. It's it, hard not to stare sometimes, you know, because it's Sam freaking Elliott. He yeah. just had an Oscar nomination, yeah, a little renaissance of the
1: career, including yeah. this movie, which is perfectly insane. But nevertheless, it's, he's so good at uh, it. Uh, and you know, a, a, a guy who who uh, was assigned to kill Hitler years yeah. ago, years later, <laughs> is brought in by the, the Canadian <laughs> government uh, to go after Bigfoot. The juxtaposition of Hitler
0: and the, Bigfoot. I'm sure that there's something deeply psychologically the, significant in that. But it's you know. a ridiculous concept, and the only reason it works is because he is. so such a great actor he totally sells it plays he it totally straight. sells it plays it's it straight. straight plays it straight. Yeah. that's
1: where you have to play something like this straight the man who killed uh special features uh deleted scenes uh, uh the making of the man who killed hitler and then bigfoot i love the very particular title of the, of the film yeah. right there so you know neat stuff relatively speaking i suppose nancy drew yeah uh nancy drew in the hidden staircase i like these this little series of movies they're fun Yep. Uh um uh and uh, this one is no different than any wonderful Nancy Drew series. My wife read every single one of those books when yeah. we were a little kid
0: And they are trying to reboot this now. So they they've they've gone and uh, recruited Sophia Lillis, who is an absolutely delightful actress. Mm-hmm. And uh she of course made her big debut in in it and uh wild Everybody and then showed up on uh, HBO playing the uh, young Amy Adams in uh in um Sharp Objects, which is now going to get a, a second season. It's going to be uh, blown out into a thing now, uh, but yeah, she's a, she's a, you know they've they've updated the spiral staircase for the digital era. There's a whole like cell phone thing going on, and they're trying to make it all kind of hip and modern. And it it uh, it's still basically the same story. Um, I will say this: it's uh, and Ellen DeGeneres produced this, by the way. Oh, Ellen yeah. DeGeneres got got, through, got behind this. I don't know if they're going to be able to get a franchise out of this because the 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 writing is kind of sloppy and silly even though Sophia is terrific. So if it if they can squeeze more movies out of this it's because of her. It's because she's really really good. But and because maybe maybe there is a generation still left to discover this, but anyway, it is it, for me at least. Uh, you know, my reaction was, I know it's silly, but uh, bring on some Hardy Boys too. Oh well,
1: yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, look, the the storylines here, I would have liked it better if they had simply adapted the storylines directly from the books. Yeah. As opposed to trying to get creative yeah. and original and yeah. contemporary and all that kind of stuff. And I, I know you got to figure out a way to get cell phones and, <laughs> and, and, and computers into it, but you know, do that instead. Yeah. Uh, but you know that's that, yeah. okay with me. Uh, okay with me. Uh, the last man, Christian uh, Hayden Christensen and uh, Harvey Keitel. Haven't seen Harvey in a while.
0: Yeah. And, well, you're uh, gonna see a lot of him in uh, in the Irishman, the yeah, Scorsese film. Yeah, coming up. Yeah. Uh,
1: uh. So this is a this is a this is a, this is a pretty intense little movie here about a combat combat veteran with PTSD, uh, who decides that the world uh, is about to be destroyed. Uh, and, and he starts building uh, this compound uh, for him and, and, and his family. He, he gets involved with Harvey Keitel, just this all, like, Messiah-like figure. And, uh, you know, it, it's kind of like Shelter. Remember that Michael Sheehan film, Shelter, where he was the oh, one yeah, walking yeah, yeah, around yeah. saying everything's going to go, everything's going to go, yeah. and, you, and, you were, and then, you know, it kind of did. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's something like that, only a little bit
0: more action-oriented. Yeah. yeah. Sweet. Uh, let's see. What else do we you have? You know, let me, let me hit some. I some, some docs. Let, gonna... let me hit some 4Ks. Because okay. we've got a few new movies on 4K. And I'll um, hold on to these docs for a moment. So they were able to get to us with uh, Spider Man Into the Spider Verse on 4K. And uh, this is uh, this is a significant step up from the Blu ray. Got to be honest. The, uh, the HDR really, really seriously matters. Sony, of course, the originators of Blu ray and 4K, uh, Blu ray UHD. Their HDR is really, really super dazzling. You, of course, get the digital movie here on uh, Movies Anywhere if you want to add it to your Movies Anywhere account. And uh, ignore what it says, offer expires on 12, 31, 2020. Uh, no, it doesn't. Nothing on Movies Anywhere ever expires. I don't know why they even bother to do that, but... It really, really is dazzling. The reds, the blues, um, everything just pops in a whole different way when you're watching this on a high def, on a, on a 4K set through uh, with HDR. It really, really pops. It's uh, it's designed for it, and it really has a cinematic quality, much more so than the Blu-ray. It is one of the few titles I've seen where that is a significant uh, improvement, and you really, really do notice it. Um, not far behind, oddly enough, is another animated 4K uh, release this week. Two full-length features on this double feature of Hellboy animated, Sword of Storms and Blood and Iron. Part of it is because Hell uh, Hellboy is just so freaking red that the contrast between that red and everything else just jumps out at you uh, it, it's it, again not, it's not in the same league as Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse but you really really do you're very aware of the fact that you're watching something in 4K and that the uh, the, 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 the Ultra HD is, is really giving you uh, something entirely different um, there's some extras on here too quite a lot of interesting extras uh, mostly featurettes behind the scenes stuff um inside stuff on Hellboy and there's even a, uh, an audio commentary that is really, really good with uh, some of the uh, principal contributors to um, blood and iron. That That one's really, really tops. The interesting thing, the reason this is coming out now, obviously is because there's a new Hellboy movie mm-hmm. which is coming out soon. What a uh, new Hellboy. A w- uh, new Hellboy and uh, a whole new a whole new take on it. Uh, they're obviously trying to franchise it into something else. Uh, Guillermo del Toro was the godfather of the last two Hellboy movies and kind of uh, they think they feel they ran their course with those the, so we'll see but they're they're obviously very methodically trying to make Hellboy a thing again mm-hmm. uh, also on 4K we have Bumblebee the uh, Transformers spinoff I don't really get the point of any of these movies. Haley, it's all,
1: Haley Steinfeld was in it and that's 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 it, they're that's all
0: great. But they're all still the same. They're and they're, all just, the same. they're not doing it. And literally
1: the narrative, the the actual storyline of that one is the same storyline that was the storyline in the very first one the Star Child, where you find Shaq it's literally the same. It's exact story
0: I know. I I just it's it, I, they need to kind of stop. And don't even reboot it. Just let it be a thing. It lives there. And just stop spending so much money on this because you're not going to get it back. Uh, what I actually prefer on this is that there are there's a really in, uh, interesting uh, what they call an animated motion comic, Bumblebee's Next Adventure. That's really interesting um, it, it, because it's different. It's not the same old thing. And then there's a bunch of outtakes and deleted scenes and stuff like that. Um, and it's a two two disc set. And then the last two here, this is very interesting. Uh, there's a new Pet Cemetery coming out too. Yep. So they released. So I remember released... covering
1: the junket for that in 1990. What three? Or yeah,
0: yeah. the The original Pet cemetery is, has now been released on 4K. That is bold. That is obviously assuming that there is a huge audience for this. Directed by Mary Lambert, who was one of the first directors at the time—female directors—to kind of make the leap into genre material. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one being Catherine Bigelow. Catherine Bigelow and Mary Lambert were pioneers. They were not making chick flicks. Yeah. They were not making as women's opposed to films. Susan Seidelman desperately exactly. seeking Susan, or, or yeah, yeah or, or you know, yeah. They they were not, or, or, or Penny Marshall. They yeah. were not making movies that very clearly had a female quality to them. They said, "I'm going to go and I'm going to play with the boys." What's very upsetting is that Mary Lambert's career really didn't go anywhere after no. this. She was not rewarded for this, and that's upsetting. I don't know why. I'm sure there's a story. I'd love to talk to her about that. I'm sure she's she's got some some feelings about that. But uh, nonetheless, this is the 30th anniversary release of Pet Cemetery. I don't know. I hear the new one is terrific, but this one is also terrific. Yeah. And uh, this is a really good film and uh, has some great extras on it. Uh, you know, new interview with Mary Lambert where she doesn't really go deep. I mean, she's plugging the movie. I'd love to hear the, the deep stuff. Uh, there are some new galleries, image galleries. She does an audio commentary as well. Goes into a lot of interesting stuff. Um, so yeah, the original Pet Cemetery on 4K is very impressive. And lastly, Tim, let's talk for a second about Clint Eastwood's The Mule. Ah, which um expected to
1: do better during the awards season than it did.
0: Came and went. Bradley Cooper shows up in this too, uh, which was not really widely mentioned. Uh, you know, he was uh. Doing his own thing with *Star Is Born*, but nonetheless, uh, the the mule is about you know it's Clint kind of playing himself. He hasn't acted in one of his own although movies it's loosely in a long time. based
1: on a true story.
0: Loosely based on a true story about a guy in his eighties who's kind of you know hit the skids and he's um, he's he he gets a chance to sort of kind of pull himself together financially by being a drug mule, mm. and all of the things that are wrapped around that are really psychologically very interesting, but. Um, does it work? No. Ultimately, it doesn't. It Why doesn't and, and, it
1: work? And neither that the other old man movie, Robert Redford's. Yeah. Uh, old Man and the Gun. Yeah. <clears throat> um, also loosely based on a true story. Yeah. And, and I don't know, maybe it's because, well, one of the things that doesn't work in that Clint Eastwood movie is that the character is literally not likable. Yeah. Uh, he, this, I, if I knew this man, and he, and he is as Clint played him, I wouldn't like him. Yeah. And I would root for him to get caught. Uh, <laughs> old Man and the Gun, that character was kind of likable in a certain sort of the way. He was irascible anyway. Yeah. But at the end of the day, he was still an asshole. Yeah. Con man. Yeah. Uh, and you know what? I don't like asshole con men. They're 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 um, not likable characters, and I don't think that I could find the heroic
0: figures that were meant to be found found in those they two characters. Try see, that's what it is. That's the point. That's you, you nailed it. So the ultimately Sissy SpaceX saw all kinds of things in him in the old man and the gun. That I didn't. Yeah. And I love her and I and I'm willing to trust her to a point, but she saw things in him that I did not, and yeah. I couldn't get over that hump. And that's the thing, is that there's something that they're trying to portray as heroic about this figure, something mythic yeah. in this figure in the mule, which I could buy that only because of Clint, but ultimately Clint only gets me to a point. Yeah. Right? He he his persona gets me only so far. Redford's persona and Sissy SpaceX love only get me so far. At a certain point I'm gonna sit there and I'm gonna go, Yeah, but I still can't I still can't cross that hurdle. You've yeah. got to sell the character in some other ways. So yeah. anyway. Yeah. All right.
1: And the thing of these guys are not good guys.
0: All right, let's move into some docks. We've got a lot of docks, and uh, we haven't really d- taken a deep dive into some of these uh, some of these cool docks in a while. so let's let's dive j- dive onto some of this.
1: All righty. Um, I've got a few over here. I'll start with a cute one. Pick up the litter. Pick up the litter. It's a it's a documentary about these little bitty puppies who are just the cutest things in the world. Who, <laughs> from the moment they're born, they're yeah. going to be trained to be CNI uh, yeah. uh, uh, the dogs. Yeah. And that's how. And it basically explains the way that works. If you've ever wondered where C&I dogs come from, yeah. well, this this movie will explain it to you. It it takes a it takes a dog with a, f- a very particular temperament. I'm a dog lover. Me and you know, yeah. Birch had dogs yeah. for years and years and years. Neither of our dogs would have uh, been good. At this. <laughs> <It> <laughs> I remember been those dogs. <laughs> uh, they're but they're guide puppies. Uh, so it's a lovely documentary about that. On to something a bit more ominous. Uh, Honduras is a uh, a country uh, that is relatively speaking lawless, yeah, uh, highly murderous, run more or less by drug cartels. The you know, it's government a problem all and, through
0: Central America, uh, all through
1: Central America, yeah, uh, and only getting worse. Um, the Olancho is a certain kind of band uh, that uh, that roams around. Um, uh, Mexico, uh, Honduras, m- uh, Salvador, many of these places. And what they do is they write these songs uh, that are homages to the drug cartels and leaders of drug cartels. And they are employed to play at these lavish parties and um, sometimes p- parties thrown for communities yeah. and sing these songs. And homages, of course, sometimes this gets them killed if they say something in one of their songs negative about a different drug cartel guy. So uh, this this film is all about that. Um, and, and while that in and of itself is kind of interesting, what's going on uh, and the explanation of, 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 of what the problem is in Honduras is more interesting. That's the truly interesting yeah. thing about this documentary. Um, uh, I, you know, these people, uh, well, that is, that is what it is. Uh, Cuban Food Stories by Asori Soto. This is just a lovely, lovely film uh, um, uh, about this young f- uh, filmmaker who had to flee Cuba many years ago, uh, as was the case. Uh, um, when the Soviet Union arrived, uh, and many years later returning back to his home in Cuba and rediscovering the foods of his youth, the food that his grandmother and, uh, and great-grandmother used to cook, and then, you know, sort of like a, uh, making a, a little movie about it all while he's there. It's a lovely, lovely uh, a doc about Cuba, but it's mostly about the food, and uh, you might enjoy it jihadist an unparalleled look into the uh, into extremists in islam this I, I happen to talk about this movie on the on film week um so this is just a, 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 a look sobering' it's absolutely sobering uh, yeah. absolutely actually banned in france uh this movie uh so these um uh, the, the, these uh, filmmakers managed to talk uh, themselves into the ranks of these jihadists yeah. Um, uh, as filmmakers, and these jihadists are completely and totally candid with them about everything that they yeah. think and what they do. What's what's sobering about it is is how earnest all of these perfectly insane yeah. people are. Uh, these jihadists are about what they're doing and why they're doing it, and the pure form of Islam. Yeah. Um. I don't know, man. Uh, it sometimes I find it absolutely fascinating that there is still sort of we were just talking about your mm-hmm. your 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 your, yeah. your epic you're writing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this the, the thinking in this is 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 from Byzantium. Yeah. It's, it's it's
0: it, it is, uh it is of another planet, another era. Yeah, it is. It's a uh, it's it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it's nuts. Anyway. Yeah, persists in the present day. It's medievalism in the mes- in the present day. Yeah, no. The Byzantine era revisited. Yeah.
1: Uh, The Lost Village. Uh, This is a neat little doc about the loss uh, of Greenwich Village in New York. Um, Years and years and years ago, uh, when I was in high school, my father kidnapped me. Not really. He he he, He took me one day from school. Uh, and uh, and said, "Come with me, boy." And uh, and uh, we jumped in the car and we drove to New York from St. Louis, uh, where he was playing a couple of gigs. And he said we should hang out. And uh... and and man, it was fantastic in the late '80s. And Greenwich Village was one of the places where we we played and hung out and did stuff. And it was a very sort of p- particular bohemian community, as mm. we've all thought about it. Uh, I can think of so many movies that were set in Greenwich Village. Yeah. The Pope of Greenwich Village. Yeah. Uh, one of the well, that place doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Gentrification. Like every place um, here in Los Angeles where all we're changed. from, it's all changed. And this is about the Lost Village. Uh, it's an expose of how that counterculture uh, the, of the 60s and 70s has basically been turned into condos and chain stores.
0: You remember when when we made Schlock? Uh, one of my great contribution to Schlock was uh, being able to arrange for uh, us to shoot the demolition mm. of the last drive-in on the west side of Los Angeles, which yeah. was over in uh, in the uh, in the the, 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 the uh, kind of the Mar Vista Culver City-ish uh, Fox Hills area, yeah. and right near the Fox Hills Mall, and it's all condos now and yeah. you know they the, we 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 were there with two cameras rolling when that thing was blown apart
1: i'm so happy that we arrived in la in 1990 yeah. uh, early enough to have actually gone to a couple of films there
0: yeah it,
1: it's funny we talked about pet cemetery
0: uh, yeah. uh, earlier we saw pet cemetery oh isn't that interesting yeah. uh, oh, that's right crazy i yeah. uh, got some here from pbs really good stuff from pbs so uh, dr loosely lucy, lucy Worsley it takes 2 hours on Victoria and Albert the wedding to recreate the famous wedding of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert and it is extraordinary i mean this is a work of rem- rem- i mean this is this is when historians really really earn their keep she's not teaching you a course you're not taking notes She's not, you know, uh, doing it in a very dry way. She is restaging that whole wedding based on what we actually know. This is really good history stuff. And not only that, but she goes into all of the details of it and what it means and how it changed, basically, the, the way that the Western world understood what a wedding was and how weddings took place. You know, royal weddings were not the same before, as they were after the wedding of uh, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, and it is really, really pretty cool. Uh, so that's it's two hours. You know, you got to really be into royal weddings uh, to to fully uh, appreciate that. But it's 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 pretty great. The uh, the USS Indianapolis, the final chapter. Uh, so the in nineteen forty five, the um, uh, this is all kind of tied in with the atomic bomb a, a little bit the uh, the the USS Indianapolis was sunk by a Japanese submarine right after the dropping of the first atomic bomb. And it's not one of the sinkings. It's not up there with, you know, anything that happened at Midway or Pearl Harbor. It's not one of those legendary moments from World War II until you realize that this is literally to this day the worst loss of life in the history of the United States Navy. Uh, 900, uh, 300 sailors died, and um, 900 wound up surviving. They were, you know, and it, 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 what they went through to survive, it's just, it's extraordinary. I mean, this is a, an amazing, this is an amazing, um, this is an amazing piece of history. And, uh, so what they do is they go, this is a, this is a documentary where they go and they revisit, uh, the story, they revisit the wreck and, uh, kind of reconstruct this, this horrible history and the aftermath as well for those who did survive. Um, it, it's just, it's a, it's a story from World War II and the, and the Pacific theater that is unfortunately really, un, it's lost. You know, people don't really know much about the Indianapolis, so it's great. Uh, the PBS series Nature has a great installation uh, installment here. This is a two-hour nature installment called Equus: The Story of the Horse, and uh, it's it's effectively a a history lesson in the relationship between men and horses. Mm. And uh, the anthropologist Niobe Thompson uh, basically guides us on this, talking to a lot of experts in a lot of different fields. To go into the origins of when human beings first looked at a horse and said, "I bet I could ride that. (laughs) I could tame that thing. Be a lot. You know, I'm tired of walking. uh, I'll bet I could get from here to the next village a whole lot faster mm. and be easier on my feet. I could get on that Mm. thing's back. Mm. And Mm. you know, we don't think about that. We Mm. take horses for granted. But Mm. you know, I've
1: always thought to myself, nobody ever asked the horse." <laughs> hey, can I get on your back? And the thing of it is, they call it horse breaking for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Anyway, it's really interesting. And it's something that apparently happened uh, not in one place, but in a lot of places simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah. So like the adoption of language. The adoption of language, the domestication of dogs, yeah, as well. Yeah. You know, there wasn't like uh, one original dog that was domesticated and suddenly everybody get a shout out. From, yeah. You know, it's not like some somebody in India domesticated a dog and then did a shout out to Scandinavia <laughs> and, and hey, Egypt. And you know, uh, you can do this, right? Yeah, now. no, it, it, these yeah. are things that are all are kind of simultaneous. It's really, really interesting. And it's 110 minutes long and worth every single second of it. So, uh, Nova, the installment of Nova Apollo's daring mission. Uh this is very good. It's an hour long, but it is not, you know, the the recent feature film, the IMAX uh ah. release of uh the on on the Apollo mission is the one to see. That's the the big mama. Yeah. This is fine uh in this, you know, 50 year anniversary, there're going to be a lot of these. We're going to be seeing a lot of these documentaries about the Apollo mission and so forth and so on, and they're all worth checking out. Just make sure you don't miss the the big one. Yeah. The Apollo 11. Uh, film that was released on IMAX. A That's lot of the... original archived footage oh, never s- seen never seen. In it's tremendous. But um, this, in particular, is uh, about an earlier mission, Apollo 8, which um, was the first manned mission to the moon, but not a landing on the moon. Mm-hmm. So, uh, as a lot of people know, Apollo 1 was the one where the, the astronauts died, including mm-hmm. the famous Gus Grissom, who, mm-hmm. of course, is depicted in The Right Stuff. And uh, Fred Ward, Fred Ward, Fred Ward playing Gus Grissom beautifully. And so, Apollo 8 was the one that was preparatory to Apollo 11 because they had to orbit Mm -hmm. the moon, they had to show that we could actually get physically to the moon and back again. And uh, then we'll worry about landing you, yeah. But we want to make sure we can even get there and back again. So, in many respects. Apollo 11, yeah, it was a big deal. But these guys are just as courageous, and they're kind of unsung and oh, unheralded. And,
1: and the great drama of that event, of course, is yeah. because they go around the moon, to the dark side of the moon. Yeah. We didn't have enough satellites uh, positioned yeah. yet. So there's that whole chunk of time. Blackout. When, when there was this big blackout. Now, yeah. if the slingshotting effect of the gravitational pull of the moon doesn't work the way it has been calculated by a black lady, by the way, yeah. then, <laughs> then, 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 then for all we know, they slingshot off into space. Yeah. But no. No, her math was correct.
0: It they, damn rot. Right. Good for her. There. Rock on. Hidden figures. Uh, so anyway, this is, so Apollo, uh, Apollo 8 is the subject of Apollo's daring mission. But remember, Apollo 11, the movie, is the, is the big mama. And then that leads us into another Nova, Pluto and beyond. So just for everybody, uh, just so you know, Pluto's a planet. I don't care what all these so-called experts <laughs> say. Uh, Seriously, I don't give a damn what they say it's a planet. Mm. And I got really mad and they almost had to escort me out of the Griffith Planetarium when I took <laughs> when I took my daughter there for the first time cuz it says something like, you know, it's a it's a semi kind of pseudo planet. I started like literally screaming like I like some kind of a drunk homeless man. I was uh, so angry. I said, it's a planet. Uh. So, uh anyway, that aside, that minor disagreement, uh this is uh this this gives us a lot of really really amazing stuff from the um the Ultima Thule probe, uh, flyby thing. You know, Ultima Thule is is this object on the outskirts of the solar system, and uh, it's con- it's it's like the, considered to possibly be the oldest existing thing in the solar system, mm-hmm. older than all the planets themselves. So it's sort of you know it's like it's like the Rosetta Stone of the solar system. So um, this will happen on New Year's of this this year that the Pluto probe did its little flyby uh, of Ultima Thule, and um, the, this gets into all everything that is, you know, mm. related to that and it, the, the the Kuiper belt and all yeah. these things that are sort of on the outskirts of the solar system. Really super interesting. Very, very well done. And I wish it was longer than 60 minutes. Fantastic. I love that stuff. Awesome. Good. Yeah. I got a few. Okay.
1: I'm over here, including this film by Judd Apatow. I'll tell you why this film uh, is um, uh, interesting. Uh, the very fact that Judd made it Judd was a mentee I guess is what you call uh, of uh, of Gary Shandling this is called The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling nice so uh, lost Gary back in 2016 uh, you, you know, I mean, uh, Gary Shandling was always one of the funniest comedians from that from that era of comedians that included guys like uh Robert Klein, yeah, and uh, Richard Lewis, and uh, you know Jay Leno, uh, uh, Jay Leno guys. Yeah. That was Jerry Seinfeld of a certain age, and, and and Gary was right there, yeah, a little a little bit older than most of those guys except for maybe Klein. Um, and and I did not know how uh, well considered he was by all of them. As I say, he was a mentor to Judd Apatow who, uh, since his death, took it upon his time uh, to sit down with a whole bunch of people who knew and worked with Gary Shanley and make this film Um, that's basically a homage to to a man that he loved very much. Uh, It's a two-part film, uh, 120 minutes and 150 minutes uh, respectively, Uh, all kinds of bonus features, including an interview with Judd. Uh, and uh, extended scenes with the, with the, the many many people who were interviewed in this film, who, um, who who all say that you know he had a very interesting life, in and of, in and of itself, Gary. Um, but the specific thing that they're talking about in this movie is what a wonderful person he was to people like them and everyone around him, and how everybody loved him. And I always think that's an interesting thing. Uh, so the Zen Diaries of uh, Love it Gary Shilling. Uh, Mr. Capper goes to war. Frank Capper during World War II made a number of documentaries. Made a yeah. number of docs
0: considered sort of uh, criticized because they were propaganda films, but also praised because they were really damn good. Propaganda they were very films. good propaganda films. They were all yeah. George Stevens.
1: They were all. Bra- yeah. Yeah. If you're making if you're making a film during wartime, you're making a <laughs> propaganda film. I don't care. Yeah, did, yeah. what they, that's the nature of the thing. Um, but they really were um, uh, wonderful, and there were, there were a number of them. Uh, one, two, three, four of five of them are contained in this. Uh, Blu-ray, uh, uh, Frank Capra's World War II documentary, Mr. Capra Goes to War. Uh, Prelude to War uh, was the first of them. Uh, Why We Fight is a part of that series. You've probably seen those before as part of television shows and things like that. Yeah. Uh, the Battle of Russia, uh, a two-part uh, uh, documentary there. One that I'm particularly fond of, The Negro Soldier, uh, which was pr- produced but and directed by him. Uh, it covers the nineteen thirty six Berlin Games in which you know Jesse uh, Jesse Owens pr- participated uh, in a complicated series of, uh, of, of events and the Tunisian victory. The Tunisian victory not always yeah. covered as a part of the series yeah. of documentaries made about the war. Yeah, Um are so very very interesting stuff. Uh, several special features as well, including um, an analysis of why we fried by uh, Joseph McBride, friend of ours. Yeah. Good job, film historian, uh, and uh, and some and some other things. So a really, really, really lovely uh, set of uh, films uh, that are not "It's a Wonderful
0: Life." Uh, Divide and Conquer: The Story of Roger Ailes is a man, re- oh man. really, really good documentary. And you know the the thing is, it's it's very hard to make documentaries about controversial people. Gonna have them be significantly balanced enough to be to not feel like that like you're you're either putting this person on a pedestal or just taking them down and doing a hatchet piece. Mm. This manages to actually be very, very even handed, mm. as as even handed as you can be with somebody like Ailes. <laughs> so you know Roger Ailes, big political operative going all the way back to the Reagan administration, basically built Fox News for the Murdochs from mm-hmm. the ground up, um built every single aspect of it, hired all the original talent, managed it like a king. Until he became one of the first uh, mm. to tumble in the Me, Me in the Too Me era, too, yeah, yeah. but right before Harvey Weinstein, by yeah, the way, he yeah. was the precursor.
1: Roger, Roger was more clever than all of them, though.
0: He was, yeah, because he, he died. He died in he, 2017. Yeah, he,
1: he knew to just die. Yep, uh, and so, uh, you, you win, Roger.
0: He won before the Harvey thing yeah. broke, and everybody else took. He just he, he got it all anyway. The uh, so it is it is it's pretty comprehensive and it's very very thorough and um you know the the thing about Roger Ailes is that that asymmetrical face half of yeah. it just drooped lower than the other half I don't know what gravity did to him but it was not fair yeah so uh, that being said uh, you know Roger Ailes really a seminal figure in our day I mean he he changed the landscape of television news. Uh, he, he pioneered things at Fox that have trickled over to MSNBC and CNN and elsewhere mm-hmm. that have changed how, for, for better or worse.
1: Yeah, sometimes sometimes in, in the reverse. The thing yeah. is, prior to Roger, there were conservatives in the media and on the news. Uh, um, um, yeah, so, so it's not like you know, George Will and all, yeah. it's not like conservative voices weren't there. He, he aggregated them uh, into one spot, but then he also threw out uh, truth yeah uh that so, so so it's not the conservative he, thing that's the problem it
0: brought what he did was he brought the mindset the which to an extent it was it was a it was a proper merging with murdoch they they were of a kind you know Murdoch brought the world of tabloid journalism into legit journalism mm-hmm. Ailes brought the world of talk radio into mainstream news mm-hmm. and that tabloided everything and it, you could argue that everything was moving that way to begin with that in the internet age and in the 24-hour news cycle that that's sort of what people want i don't know if it's what people want but even if it's what they want it's not what they need mm. yeah. so yeah. uh you know it is a it's it's fodder for thought fodder for conversation but uh you know for better or worse one of the most influential figures we've had in a long time uh the uh, the last race was uh this was oscar nominated i'm pretty sure uh, I didn't check that before the show, but uh, this is uh, this is actually a very very solid doc, also from Magnolia, from uh, 2017, which uh, looks. It, this is all about the world of stock car racing, and specifically focuses on a um, a particular stock car track in Long Island, and the the people who have owned it for decades and decades and decades, family owned thing, and. Um, uh, how they're going to re- reckon to the how they're going to reconcile themselves to uh, the inevitability of the land being so valuable that it's going to have to be converted. we were just talking about converting, you know, into condos. The old drive-ins, same thing with race tracks. You know, in a lot of these places where real estate value has skyrocketed, um, what do you do when suddenly, you know, you you got to let go of something that is kind of central to the community and let it become something else. Same thing in in um, a United Skates the documentary that we talked about on Film Week some weeks ago, which mm. we'll shortly talk about again when it's uh, it's on DVD. Which is all about the the relevance of uh, of, of skating rinks, uh, roller skating rinks, especially in the inner city and in black communities, which suddenly uh, are going away and being replaced by condos and everything else. So you have all. This is sort of the. Uh, the, the blue-collar, white working-class version of that. Uh, and stock car tracks, even Hollywood Park, for crying out yeah, loud. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, horse racing tracks. This is this is happening everywhere in this gentrification trend. So this uh, looks at the, the stock car racing aspect of that. Uh, Kusama Infinity, the life and art of Yayoi Kusama. Kusama yeah. is, of course, one of the great artists of our day, a very eccentric uh, Japanese artist who loves... Polka dots and designs yeah. and all kinds of other things. And you've seen
1: her work. Oh, you've yeah. totally seen her work. And at scale,
0: uh, yeah. there was a uh, there was a recent uh, Kusama mirrors exhibit here at the uh, at the Broad yeah. downtown, and uh, I went down there with uh, my wife and my daughter and a friend of mine from uh, from film school, and uh, it was extraordinary. You know, you go into these little mirror chambers and take some photos, and you're only allowed in there for like fifteen seconds, yeah. and then you have to leave, and the next people go in. Um, really, a, a singular artist, uh, fascinating, and uh, the great this-
1: doc, because the doc begins with her as a, as a youth, as a child, yeah. in Japan, yeah, uh, where she experienced some absolutely fascinating things, none the least of which was finding out and observing her father in this particular affair, yeah, uh, which sort of directed her in the way she, and shaped her personality for the rest of her life. What I love about that doc. And and, and about her is that in the 60s, in the 60s, well before Andy Warhol, she was just a bulldog. That's true. And she came to America, a Japanese uh, yeah. woman, and she was just a bulldog about her work and her art. And she just went to New York and she simply Did walked into galleries and said, I'm going to show here. You should clear that wall for me. <laughs> That's uh, great. And, and the thing of it is, it, it worked.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah so interesting. She's, she's a fascinating figure. And then uh, on Blu ray, this came out uh, actually some months ago, uh, but I wanted to, to give it proper time. Uh, uh, Amir Bar Levy. Uh, I'm yeah. sorry, Amir Barlev yeah. is an unbelievable filmmaker. Uh, did the Tillman story, which my wife worked on. Yeah, yeah and, about Pet
1: Tillman. Yeah,
0: yeah and, and just an extraordinary filmmaker, but really outdoes himself with Long Strange Trip, The Untold Story of the Grateful Dead. So this this doc is four hours long. Yeah. I just want to underline this. This is a four-hour documentary about the Grateful Dead. Now, I had to I had to cover this on Film Week. Uh, the week that it was released. And yeah. I remember, you know, our Film Week rundown, Tim will, will will testify to this, you love movies that are 80 minutes long because that means that you can start packing those movies in uh, in that week and a half that you mm-hmm. have to really cram and you could just knock them out. And when you want me to spend four hours watching one movie, yeah. I'm like, do you realize how many other Film Week movies I have to see, how many I can see in this four-hour period? I could get three other movies in almost in this in this four-hour period. Okay, Grateful Dead, fine. I don't even like The Grateful Dead. I've got friends who are <laughs> deadheads. The newspaper where Tim and I met was owned. <gasps> oh run, my God! The, the, the editor in chief was the owner's son. He was a crazy yeah. deadhead. Had like tapes galore. It was just—it's too much dead in yeah. my life. Yeah. I don't want to watch four. I don't want to watch a four-hour movie about anything, much less The Grateful Dead. That makes it even worse. Fine. You know what? I'll put it on in the background when I'm folding my laundry and doing uh, doing dishes. I'll just—I'll put it on my iPad. I'll carry it around the house with me. I'll absorb enough to be able to say something informed on, on film week because I'm am I actually gonna like this anyway? I put this on and for four hours my laundry did not get folded. Yeah. I was riveted. From beginning to end, this is one of the great document. This one up on my top ten, and
1: and and and, and mostly because of the uh, the way it reveals Jerry Garcia. That's it. It's it's, the G- it's, it's not about the music. It, no, not really. It is, which not is not why you music. don't have to like the music. Yeah. No, it's the sort of we had a, a, a movie a called the Zen of yeah. They could call that the Zen of Z- Jerry Garcia.
0: It is so interesting. Uh, the drama of how the band came together, of how they endured all of these various forces and issues, including. Drug addiction, namely Jerry's, and and the philosophy behind it, and then their sort of resurgence yeah. in the nineteen nineties. You know, the it it really is incredibly intriguing, and uh, especially Jerry Garcia, who is a. Who's was really kind of a true civil libertarian in every fiber oh, yeah. of his body. Jerry.
1: Jerry just didn't judge anybody. Nobody, man. Yeah.
0: And and it gets down to a point where when there when suddenly it wasn't just deadheads in their concerts, but it was you know everybody who wanted to be trendy. And suddenly these people are misbehaving, and there's violence and drug abuse in the concerts. And the band was was all together saying, you know, maybe we need to send out a message to these people saying this will not be tolerated at our concerts. And the one who wouldn't sign on was Jerry. Yeah. Because he says, you know what? My job is to play the music. Whatever they do, they're going to do. Not my responsibility. Mm -hmm. I'm not there to judge them. I'm not there to tell them what to do or what not to do. They're gonna do what they're gonna do. I'm gonna play my music, and they and they will and, deal with the consequences of what they do. That's it, and, and it I was, will deal with the consequences of what I do. And it, and it was it is so purely his philosophy of life that yeah. guided him, and it and that's part of what makes sitting there for four hours watching this so compelling. Uh, and Bob Weir is, you know, sitting there all funky in a yoga pose. And, <laughs> it's, you know, it's uh, there, it's it's really it's a great documentary. It's on Blu-ray and it is a beautiful film on Blu-ray. And Amir Barlev is the man. He is so the man. Uh, he is one of the great documentarians my, 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 of my our age. My kid
1: could paint that.
0: Long, strange trip. Yeah, I think I interviewed him. My kid could yeah. paint that. Um, uh,
1: this is an interesting film. Uh, in the early 70s. Uh, just about the time that portable cameras came onto the scene, because most people th- think that was the early 80s, but it wasn't. It was the early 70s when you could get those little separate porter pack cameras. Um, there was this collective of, um, of video makers that called themselves, TVTV uh, TV-TV, top-value television, uh, uh, who at the time were just sort of like roaming around with these devices, uh, shooting things just because they could, and they would uh, they would cover like cover like the nineteen seventy two uh, Republican Convention, yeah. uh, Super Bowl. I think it was like Super Bowl six or something like that. Uh, just all kinds of things. Now, what's interesting is who these people were and who they would turn out to be. And uh, now, one of them um, has collected their work into um, uh, this. His name's Paul Goldsmith, and he was one. Of, he's an alum of the group. This is some of the names of the folks who were wandering around with video cameras, doing all kinds of things uh, back in the early '70s. Bill Murray, John Belushi, Goldie Hawn, Hunter S. Thompson, Steven Spielberg, Lily Tomlin, Bob Dylan. All were little like nascent filmmakers, videographers, and or reporters, depending on exactly what they were doing in the early seventies uh with with this like new technology called video uh and they did some absolutely fascinating coverage of uh, iconic events, iconic events, iconic people uh and and, and yeah, defining sketch comedy before there was really a thing uh, such as if you watch a show like Vice or uh, thirty for thirty or something like that you 're watching what these guys were doing. Forty-five. In some cases, forty-five years ago, uh, and you know, it's not surprising that, that, like I said, they went on to become some of the most, yeah. uh, in, in you know, uh, uh, important people in comedy. Fantastic stuff. Um, I love this documentary, Hot to Trot. This is a documentary about uh, same-sex, the world of same-sex competitive ballroom dancing. <laughs> okay. Same-sex competitive ballroom dancing. Did
0: not know that was a thing. I
1: didn't know it was a thing either, but you know what? <laughs> it is, and what's f- wonderful about it is they're
0: really good dancers.
1: Uh, I, I like, don't doubt it. The same-sex stuff, is or, or, who cares? You guys, you, you guys, and I mean both of you, can, <laughs> can, can really dance. Somebody had to learn to dance uh, uh, you know, backwards and, uh, and in heels. Um, uh, The Breast Archives, a really wonderful uh, doc uh, by Megan Murphy. Uh, This is just a film about women uh, literally exposing and exposing uh, uh, their breasts and talking about uh, all of the issues that come with being a woman and having breasts that have nothing whatsoever to do with men, the male gaze, as they say, or what men are thinking, uh, but rather uh, just what it means to be a woman and to have breasts. And I think that that's an absolutely fascinating thing. them vendors did this uh, uh, doc about Pope Francis. Pope Francis is a man of his word. Hope is a universal message. That's what the tagline is for this. I don't know. Um, uh Pope Francis uh, has turned out to be a rather controversial and difficult figure. Yeah, it's true. Over the, you know, when when he first came on yeah. his, the scene, talking that talking that sort of liberal talk the way he did, and yeah, he's uh, earned the and, nickname embracing. the Red Pope. Yeah, you know, and you yeah. um, you know, and I don't know. So, uh, I, I, I perhaps them made this film a little too soon. I think is yeah. what I think about. Uh, could in the be reign of that this be. particular
0: pope. Uh, I'm going to make mention uh, real quickly of Daniel Rivas' wonderful, wonderful documentary from Facets: Abrazos, Tango in Buenos Aires. Uh, this, what this is, you know, look, tango and Argentina go hand in hand, and that's the that's always been, uh, you know, it's it's the it's ground zero for the for the tango, and the Buenos Aires Tango Festival is where everybody really really gets to go nuts. As long as we're talking about dancing. Tango is a whole different thing. This goes to the uh, fifth Buenos Aires Tango festival which you would think really in 2003 there mm-hmm. was only f- there'd only been five That hasn't been going on since the 50s or the 40s or yeah. no they they only did that in the late 90s and 2008. so this is from 2003 and it captures the uh, fifth uh, Buenos Aires Tango festival in a beautiful way, everything that's going on there. It is just a wonderful immersion in the culture of dance and everything to do with the tango and what it means to Argentina and what it means to these people. It's just really, really beautiful. And, uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't love watching everybody do the tango, but I sure loved watching this movie about the tango. It's really a lot of fun. And then there's also uh, Yoni Leiser's documentary, Queer Core, How to Punk a Revolution uh this is from uh, alteredinnocence.net and it is uh, it features all kinds of interviews with uh, central figures in this including john waters of all people and um it's basically about queer core and queer core is a uh an aspect of gay culture that kind of emerged in the 1980s that was um uh, it, w- it was it was it was a, it was a, it was like a rebellious movement that was designed to push back against a, a lot of what was perceived as anti-gay in the punk movement. But it was also designed to push back against conformity and cultural pressures to assimilate and to become more like straight culture. And it was sort of co-opting things from the punk movement mm. to bring into the gay rights movement. Uh, at a time when punk was perceived to be homophobic and whatnot. So mm. it really is, it's a, it's, a, it's a, kind of a little microcosm of a moment in time that didn't last very long, but it's as a historical observation of a particular subculture that, that was sort of a, a, a lightning in a bottle at that particular point in time in that place. Very, very interesting. And uh, that is Queer Core, How to Punk a Revolution. Good, uh, good doc. Mm. Interesting stuff. Um, uh, Edith Tudor
1: Hart was a well-known photographer, Australian-born photographer, and, 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 I, and I think a uh, well, fairly well-known communist sympathizer for most of her life. Um, uh, she died in 1973. In 1993, it became known that she was a pretty notorious KGB agent.
0: Oh, good heavens. Uh, uh,
1: and uh, <laughs> she was actually the person who uh, who introduced uh, uh, Kim Philby uh, 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 to the, the, the Soviets, and Kim Philby would go on to become one of the most, you know. Uh, um, uh, uh, Russian spies ever so this documentary is by her nephew Peter Steven Junk who uh, sort of goes through the entire sort of history of her life and how she came to be a KGB agent how she came to make that introduction Um, um, and it's it's a fairly interesting and fascinating sort of story Um, uh, particularly as we move back into an era of I don't know let's say tension with the Russians the Soviets are gone but the tension with the Russians Russians seem to remain, and there seems to be a good deal of spying going on again <laughs> between our two
0: countries. It'll be that way forever. And,
1: uh, you know, who knows? It'll I'm, I'm pretty forever. sure it actually never went away. Uh, this is an interesting doc, speaking of Russia, called Over the Limit. It's set in behind the scenes of the Russian uh, uh, Olympic training system. This is particularly, uh, specifically about um, uh, a Russian... Rhythmic gymnast. Her name is Margarita M- Mum, and it's about the, the, the period when she's going to be vying for her probably last Olympic uh, medal. Uh, this, this movie is, is, is really revealing. Now I look, uh, um, uh, 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 rhythmic gymnast, I don't think a whole lot about that. Yeah, but it doesn't really make yeah. any difference what uh-huh. the event is. What this film is about is that system and how vicious it is. Uh, and how they abuse the athletes—drugs uh, and and just verbal abuse and physical abuse and everything else. I mean, um, we think about the Tanya Harding thing here years mm-hmm. ago, where Tanya took to the and we think and, and the movie that was made about that. This this is this man. Had I known when I was watching uh, I Claudia Komenich and all of those yeah. w- wonderful, you know, yeah. uh, uh, in the eighties, had I known that was happening to these kids, I think I would have watched so, yeah. over the limit.
0: Uh, completing our, our dance and rhythmic gymnastics uh, segment here, Impulso. Uh, Rocio Molina is arguably the greatest flamenco dancer in the world, and she's astonishing. I mean, as a choreographer, as a dancer, the whole thing. And uh, this is all about the, the preparation for her new show at, uh, for like a 2017 show at uh, the Chaillot National Theater in Paris. And uh, it's it's about the dance. It's about the staging of the show. It's about the history of flamenco, the art of flamenco, the pain of dancing flamenco. It is um, it's really amazing. The, uh, so that is Imp- uh, Impulso by Emilio Belmonte. That is a co-production of Spain and France. Uh, all about Rocio Molina, the rise of a flamenco prodigy, and it is uh, if you've never heard of her, and if you're not particularly into flamenco dancing, do yourself a favor. It is this thing will blow by. It is an absolute joy to watch. Um, Nazi Junkies: The Hidden History of Drugs in the Third Reich. This is something people know about. It's talked about in you know yeah. kind of here and there in other films, uh, and there was a there was a book about it uh, by Norman Oler called Blitzed: Drugs in the Third Reich. And this is not a straight-up adaptation of the book, but it is inspired by the book, as they make a very clear point. They don't want to get sued. Mm. And so there are uh, two episodes to this, two separate episodes, Um, one on Hitler the Junkie, the other one Nazi junkies. And uh, (laughs) they're provocative, you know? The the are junkie exposed to Nazis. it's, It's really interesting because it goes into, you know, in the 1930s, I mean, let's face it, uh, Cab Calloway was talking about snorting cocaine yeah. in his songs. They were the the
1: opium dens all over Brooklyn, all, I mean, San Francisco.
0: The the whole idea of drugs as a taboo, illegal thing did not really emerge until the 1950s mm-hmm. with the marijuana scare. And suddenly that became a thing. And that's where the laws really, really caught up to to the presence of drugs in the society. But there were there were more drugs being done during Prohibition than booze. Yeah, they they didn't
1: call it Coca Cola because it was made from a cola
0: nut, <laughs> right? It was, it was called Coke for that yeah, reason. Yeah, exactly. Different, different reasons. So so you know the 1930s. It's not like the Nazis were a whole bunch of you know like hey man, let me let me get some smack from the from the dealer on the street. No, no, it give was, it the pharmacy. It was it, yeah, it was it was considered um, you know something that was this was how we're going to make supermen. This is how we're going to make a super army. Mm-hmm. Drugs are a good thing. They're part of. The way that we're going to enhance our abilities, and uh, so it's fascinating to see how that permeated and, in many respects, destroyed the intellectual capacity of uh, of what they thought was going to be a, a an Aryan super race, mm. and all of this. It's really, really very interesting, and it's very well backed up. So, and then uh, lastly, on my end, "Strangers on the Earth," which is um, one of these uh, sort of globe trotting. Um, uh, it, just it's a, like a, one, one of these travelogues, one of these sort of poetic travelogues. And um, this is really, it's, it's quite a beautiful film. Dane Johansson is a cello player, and he wants to sort of experience the world through his instrument. And what he does is he makes a pilgrimage through Spain and uh, plays his, his, plays his Bach. And just sort of enjoys the journey of tra- traveling the Camino de Santiago, which is kind of this, uh, which is you know a a, a particular Spanish pilgrimage route mm. that uh, has been. You know, a a pilgrimage of sorts for for generations. So, um, it's you know, it's a guy playing cello while he goes to beautiful places. Yeah, I don't know how walks I, uh,
1: that Santiago. It's
0: it's it's really it's quite beautiful, and uh, I, I'd love to see sort of more movies like this that go to more places and do things like this. It's really quite pleasant. Strangers on the Earth.
1: Mm. Um, uh, the uh, the Obama years, the power of words. This is not about Barack Obama. It's about about six specifically six speeches that he gave over the course of his presidency. Uh, of course including the 2004 Democratic Convention speech which more or less launched him as a figure uh in the popular mind of the United States and uh these six speeches and you know it, it, it is irrelevant about what you think of him or his presidency what one cannot debate is the power of his writing and his actual personal yeah. oration you have to go back to in terms of political figures Kennedy yeah Bobby or Jack uh, yeah. to, to get to a, a, another person who spoke like this some people would say Reagan I know that. Yeah. I know that. Reagan gave two. This is six. Yeah. He gave about 12. So Reagan was a powerful speaker, but he didn't give that many speeches because, you know, in that second term, he he didn't come out that much. So when he spoke, he was solid as a rock, enjoyed me plenty of Reagan speeches. But this guy just knocked them out, and he wrote them. Himself, himself, yeah. which yeah. is what's truly extraordinary. So, from the Smithsonian Channel, the Obama years, the power of words, six great speeches.
0: All right, that does it for us this week. And uh, so, keep your eye, keep your eye on April sixth. If you are a writer or interested in the uh, the shenanigans between the Writers Guild and the Association of Talent Agents. That that 43-year battle or that 43-year contract comes to a head April 6th. It'll be fascinating. I don't know where that's going to go, but we're going to keep our eye on that ball. And uh, until then, we will see you guys next week.